Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, everybody. My name is David Forrest. And I'm Frankie C. And this is Everybody Everybody Sucks. Sucks, the podcast where we explore the struggles and triumphs of the journey from amateur to professional. People think that artists are born great at what they do. But the truth is, in the beginning... Everybody sucks. All right. Well, today we are joined by Michael August. It's good to have you, Michael. Thank you. It's good to be here. I affectionately call him Lil Mikey when (laughs) we write together. (laughs) That's right. Because of his kick-ass rap lyrics. (laughs) So just a little bit about Michael. Michael August is a singer, songwriter, and producer. He was born and raised in Cherry Hill, New Jersey, but is currently based out of Nashville, Tennessee. He works at Demolition Music Publishing. Most recently, Michael co-wrote Craig Morgan's radio single, How You Make a Man. He also co-wrote double platinum selling artist Aaron Goodwin's number one single, congratulations, at Canadian country radio, Boy Like Me, as well as records recording artist Aaron Kenzie's viral hit, Just Drive. Michael has also had numerous placements in TV and film, such as the recent trailer for Good Trouble, Shameless, The Kardashians, Dynasty, American Idol, ESPN, Selling Sunset, Good Morning America, MTV, and so many more. Oh, my gosh. Wow. Who who wrote that bio? Who wrote that bio? My gosh. I love Shameless, by the way. It's a great show. Were you proud to have something on a show? Oh, big time. Yeah, Yeah. that was a fun one. There's a bunch of sci-fi shows I love, and I always dream of, like, having a song on there for some reason. You know, it'd be great to, like, watch an episode that you're... Oh, so it was during a sex scene, too. (laughs) Even better. <laughs> it was the brief, like, sex scene. No, it didn't even tell us. Oh, no. just no. turned out sexy? Yeah. Yep. <laughs> That's amazing. It was great. Well, it's great to have you here, buddy. Oh, glad to be here, man. It's awesome. It's funny. Before the record button went on, we were finding out that we have a lot in common yes. uh, uh, musically, which is great. For the listeners out there, me and Michael first met at the CCMA as a Canadian Country Music Awards in, right. in Calgary. That's and right. we, had, we have a mutual friend, Chris Yurchuk. Shout out to Yurchi. He's a great writer and a, a great friend. And, oh, yeah. uh, and we had a good time up there. It was a lot of partying. A lot so of fun. much fun. I didn't know the Canadians partied as hard as they do. Hey, was that your first time? That was the first time at the CCMAs. And I would say it rivals the week here. Really? Oh, absolutely. I think you guys partied harder. There's more things going on. Wow. Who would have thought? This podcast is so pro-Canada. I think Frankie's getting tired of all the Canadian references. Canada, (laughs) again. The best Canadian podcast based out of Nashville. (laughs) (laughs) So, Michael, what made you fall in love with music? It's interesting. So I was born into big music family. Literally, everybody was a professional musician. My parents, my uncle, my grandparents, everybody owned a branch of the New Jersey School of Music which was started by my grandfather in the 50s. 
you know, literally when I was like three years old, I was taking Suzuki piano lessons, violin lessons at such a young age. It wasn't even something I even thought about. But that's not what made me fall in love with music. Actually, I would say in middle school, I hated music. I was done with it. I played saxophone. My folks love them for it now, but forced me to be in band and did the whole thing. And that's the last thing I wanted to do. All I wanted to do was play sports. Do you think it's because your parents made you play so much music that yes. you were like, yes, that's such like a teenage reaction, isn't it? Literally, I was probably the only kid that like put down the guitar to rebel <laughs> and picked up like a <laughs> hockey stick instead. <laughs> so it was one of those things where it wasn't until I remember it. I mean, clear as day. It was junior year of high school. And just to preface, I had always been writing songs, right? Even since I was a little kid, I was always writing my oh. own songs, playing piano, never thought anything about it. It was just fun for me. And I remember junior year of high school, I played the, probably the first song that I really remember playing. The title was Familiar Stranger. <laughs> we can talk about that more later. <laughs> I'll talk about that in a bit. I thought it was yeah. so cool, of course. But I played it for like a group of people in high school and the reaction was something that just like lit a fire in me. It was like, oh, this is what music could be for me. I studied classical music. I studied jazz. But for me, it never really lit the fire. It turned out to be writing songs was what made me fall in love with music. Like it was the reaction of the people you played it for? Yeah, the reaction of the people and just realizing, I think, in that moment that something that I had created touched other people. In, mean, a, in a way that brought out emotion, and that was like, oh, wow, I didn't realize I could do that. I'm just interested, how young do you think was your first attempt to write anything? The first song that I remember as a kid ever writing was probably third or fourth grade. That's incredible, because how did you even have the wherewithal to understand that songwriting existed? I don't know. It wasn't that I knew it existed. For me, it was like, you know, everyone was in music in my family. So my dad, he was in one of those 90s wedding bands, right? 80s, 90s wedding bands at the time. <laughs> so I'd always hear them rehearsing at the house, his band. So... One day, I just started making up this song called Life is Like a Circle. <laughs> I'll never forget. <laughs> so that. Was, as a kid, and I just started singing it, and I made up this whole thing. And again, I didn't realize what I was doing. I was just having fun. That's incredible. In your junior high to high school days, did you join bands, or were you just like, I'm just going to play all my instruments and write my own songs? See, at that point, I never really thought about songwriting as a thing, right? I didn't know I was actually writing songs. I just was doing something for fun, just coming up with stuff. And for me, music was more like playing the saxophone in band, and I just didn't like it. Or, or taking piano lessons, studying classical music. So it didn't hit me again until that junior year of high school when I played a song for people that it could be something that I could do, which then lit the fire to start a band and do that whole side of the career, which happened a little bit later. So you started some bands then? Was that in yeah. high school? So right after high school, yeah, I started a band. It was called Fire by Night. And I was basically a Dave nice. Matthews wannabe. I wanted to tour the college circuit and be indie all the way, discovered, never sign a record deal until they were begging me. You know, that was <laughs> that was it, right? So, I mean, at the time, it was it was cool, though. I did. I started the band. I wrote a bunch of songs for it that were like Dave Matthews hacks. And... um we toured the college circuit, just did the whole thing independently. Which college circuit were you on? Like back in Jersey? Pretty much the East Coast. I would say down to like South Carolina up to Maine. Besides Dave Matthews, who else were you listening to at this time? Oh man, I was a huge John Mayer fan. Oh yeah. Still am. It's amazing how many 
people cite John Mayer as their musical influences. So many. Oh, I don't I even think he knows how much of an effect he's had on younger, up-and-coming musicians, writers, etc. It's totally right. When I was in college, that's when John Mayer came out. Before that, believe it or not, it was, uh, do you remember The Counting Crows? Oh, yeah. my God. August and Everything After is one of the greatest single albums ever made in uh, the history of music. Dude, did we just become best friends? I think we did. It's my favorite <laughs> record of all time. I know every word to every song on that track, man. So that, that was my biggest influence. Mr. Jones was like my favorite favorite song. Mr. Jones was the reason I picked up a guitar. Really? First cover song I ever learned. But you already knew a number of different instruments prior to, right? Yeah. I was playing piano, saxophone, guitar. I played violin for a little bit when I was really young. Piano growing up was my main instrument. Um, Saxophone, I studied for a while. Um, But guitar, honestly, guitar was more picked up later. I started a little bit in, in junior high and then didn't really take it seriously until I got to college. So this band that you're touring the college circuit with, that's a college band, right? I call it a college rock band. Sure. You know, yeah. but it was just some some guys that I had gathered together through mutual friends that were, you know, good enough to play. We sure. were all like, none of us were great, but we, we got together and we learned these songs that I was writing. So were you like the lead? Were you lead singer and lead guitar player? Lead singer. Uh, no, I had a lead guitar player, Eric, who was a good co-writer of mine for a while. First co-writer ever. Really? We had a good run for a while. We did a lot of like New York, New Jersey venues. And then the college circuit was big for us. Yeah. Mm. And then, you know, classic story, band broke up. What am I going to do? And in comes the idea of Nashville. So this song that we have here is from that band? Yes. Uh, the one we're going to do is called Coming Clean. This was the one that when I wrote probably freshman year of college, I would say. And it was one of those ones where it was just like, at the time, I thought it was the best thing since sliced bread. (laughs) (laughs) And now it's like, I can't wait because I haven't heard this thing in so long. I'm excited. Okay, let's listen to it. Scary. So, everyone, brace yourselves. Embrace this up. (laughs) Counting crows for sure. (laughs) Wake up and listen to my story. Is that your voice? Oh my god, you sound so different now. <laughs> this is before auto tune. <laughs> Man, I was so deep. <laughs> I feel like this would work at college, at college campuses. I do. Circa 2005. I don't know if any of this makes sense. A little tired, a little scared, a little used. Oh my gosh. Nice. Yeah. yeah. You got that 90s voice thing going on for sure. Rob Thomas. Yeah. You just might remember me. So listen close and make a toast for all of those who need it most. I'm gonna shock up my hands in the air. This is amazing. Man, I can I can definitely yeah. hear the counting crows in this, man. Like I can really I can hear too. that stuff. Like, <laughs> oh, oh man, my face. You, uh, obviously, no one can see me, but I'm sweating. You are. Oh, oh, oh man, get him! A, He's get him having a, a tiny panic attack yeah. over there. It's okay. Oh, oh, man. So, what are you thinking about when you listen to that? Man? Oh my gosh, I'm thinking about a kid who literally was trying to sound like 
his heroes and not succeeding now that I listen to it. But I just love that like abstract lyric, you know, in the 90s, no one knew what anyone was talking about in their songs. It's a cool one to listen to because that's the one that for sure sparked the dream. Was the first one I played that, you know, was like, oh, interesting. Like, this could be a thing that we do, you know, a career. And so then when the band ended, did you come down to Nashville right afterwards? So I had to, a good bit of soul searching as to what I wanted to do, like, was performing the thing that I was always going to do or or not. I think when I took a step back, I realized that it was songwriting that was my true love. And I was totally fine with giving up the stage to be able to write songs full time. And it took me a little while to figure out like how to do that. I remember going to things like taxi, taxi taxi.com, like Mm -hmm. the road rally in LA and, you know, meeting people. And I remember I met a mentor of mine named Jason Bloom. And I asked him point blank. I said, Jason, do you think I need to be in a major music city to make a go as a songwriter? And he said, you know what? I'm not going to tell you. But I wrote a book about it. So if you buy this, no, I'm just kidding. Oh my gosh. <laughs> no, but he did give me his book. And he w- he honestly didn't answer me right away. He did say, read this book. And I took it home and I freaking devoured the book because it was awesome. Uh, it was called Inside Songwriting. And, you know, the answer was in there. For me, it was. It was like, the answer was yes. I needed to be in a major music city to really do this. So just to clarify, you're in Jersey and mm-hmm. you're going, you're flying out to LA for a taxi conference. Yep. So... You are consciously aware that, like, there is a songwriting industry that exists. Yep. Obviously knew that there's a songwriting industry. And I was trying to figure out at the time, like, is this something that I do from Philadelphia? Like, I was right outside of Philadelphia. Okay. Or is this something where I need to be in L.A., New York, or Nashville? And it was interesting because I kept going to L.A., but all signs kept pointing to Nashville. Could you explain a sign? Well, the biggest one was Jason Bloom. And then it was interesting. I'd sent him a song at the time and I sent him just a chorus. And I was like, hey, just wanted to send this to you. And he was like, hey, I love this. Let's write it together. And for me at the time, that was like a huge deal, right? Yeah, totally. To someone like your hit songwriter, mentor saying, let's write one. So that's what brought me to Nashville for the first time. And as soon as I set foot here, it was a no brainer. I just knew I had to do it. What year was that that you first set foot? I want to say it was had to be at least 2011 was probably my first trip to Nashville. That wasn't a move down, right? That was just like a trip down? First trip down, yeah. Huh. And then followed by a lot more trips. So it was, um, I mean, how deep do you want me to go? Deep as you want. Baby. Go there. All right. Put I mean, you drink, can have you can have your, a sip, have a sip of your water. coconut water yeah, before you. Water. Okay. Yeah. Poor guy sweating, sweating bullets because we played that song. So at the time, before I moved to Nashville, I was in the car driving with my wife, who was my girlfriend at the time, Sue, and we were driving. I was talking about, what do I do? What's the next move? You know, I had this band that broke up. I was sort of toying around with a solo project, and I was like, what, what do we do? And she's like, you know what? You spend so much time writing music, recording, performing, but you don't know anybody. And I was like, Damn. <laughs> You're right. You're definitely right. She's always right. They always are. His wives are. So at the time, I was like, what do we do about this? And we came up with the idea. Remember, this is like circa 2010 or 11. This is when blogs were cool. So I had started a blog, and I had called it Making It 365. And the goal of the blog, since I didn't know anybody, 
the whole point was that I was going to reach out to one music industry professional for 365 days with the goal of signing a publishing deal by the end of it. Wow. Wow. I think the blog was the way of forcing myself to meet people, to network, and the blog itself was to hold myself accountable. So I had to write about it. Every day, I had to sit down and write about who I reached out to. And as the blog got going, if people got back to me or never got back to me, I'd write about it. I'd say, you know, this person got back to me, actually landed a meeting, so exciting, blah, blah, blah. And throughout this whole thing, every day was like, talked about who I reached out to and what the outcome was, successes, failures, everything. And it was interesting during that process of the blog is when the Jason Bloom thing happened. I came down to Nashville. We wrote a song and then kept coming down, meeting more people, took my first publishing meetings. And then by the end of the 365 days, I failed. I didn't sign a publishing deal. It's an ambitious goal. Yeah, it was weighty. But I think what it did was met all these folks, led me in all these different doors and different directions. And then eventually through this blog, I was like, okay, well, I need to move to Nashville. And my wife, Sue, was like, I love it there too, so let's do it. So we ended up making the move, got here. And while I was here, I was like, you know what? Fuck it, I'm going to do it again. It was like the hardest thing to do, to blog every day, right? But I said I was going to do it again. We'll call it Making It 365, Chapter 2, Nashville. And I do remember it was something around day 283 that I signed my first publishing deal. Oh, the my second time. gosh. Wow. And it's funny because it's still up there. And I can legitimately trace the meeting that I had that led to the other meeting that eventually led to my publishing deal. I could oh trace the steps gosh. of how it happened, who I met. And I could talk about that too, but it's it's pretty interesting. I would like to hear how you got your first publishing. Like, I've never heard of anyone doing this before. So you're 283 days in and you get your first deal. So what, 150 days before that? It was reaching out. And I can tell you that I remember specifically that one of the days, the blog for the day was going to be a live publisher pitch at ASCAP. Because they would do that every Wednesday. Mm -hmm. So I showed up to the publisher pitch, and there was a thread of snow that day. I kid you not. No other songwriter showed up except for me and the publisher. Oh, my gosh. So literally, I'm sitting with this guy. This is weird full circle, who is named Shane Barrett. At oh, the time. oh, yeah. Shane Barrett. Very well-loved publisher in town, and... I played him all my shitty songs at the time, you know what I mean? And he was like, we just hit it off. And he then started setting me up with rights, setting me up on meetings. And he's the one that set me up with a guy named John D'Agostino, who he was then pitching John D'Agostino's songs. So he set me up with John. Me and John talked for the first time. I kid you not, I wrote down the blog that day that I met this guy named John D'Agostino. He reminds me of my big Italian family, and I feel like I'm going to be working with this guy in the future. Wow. It's weird to see it later. And this is how small world it is. Turns out John starts Demolition, hires Shane Barrett as the lead song plugger, and then I ended up signing to Demolition. Wow. With the company that I'm still with now, about seven or eight years later. Is That's a insane. fucking great story. <laughs> Isn't just, that wild? I am just so happy you shared that story. <laughs> Can I swear another time? 
I, I said it was deep, but I mean, it's just wild to see like how things go full circle sometimes. Isn't you know? it interesting? Like, first of all, your blogging is brilliant. What a really unique way to kind of like, well, sort of side door your way into it yeah. in a way. Like you're still doing the meetings. You still have to play the songs, but you're kind of like generating a little more like interesting way to motivate yourself yes. that so many other people don't do it. Shoot, every day, like, we're just like, oh, I want another meeting. I don't know how to do it. And here he is blogging 365. <laughs> but what I think is so fascinating about that is is the kismet of it all, you know? Yes. Like, the way your networking brought together people that sounds like they were all meant to kind of connect in the end anyways. Yeah, it's really weird. I don't know what else to say about it other than, like, I really believe that it's just as important how good you are at your craft. As we were wondering that day in the car, is it really about what you know or is it about who you know? And I think it's both. How important has it been in your career that your wife's been so supportive of your music? Oh man, it's the biggest thing in the world. She really has been just such a rock this whole time. And we all know since we're in the business, and Colleen, you have you know such a supportive husband too and mm -hmm. who's not in the business. My wife's not in the business either relationship um no i'm single bachelor dave yeah well permanent when you do find that person one of the biggest things is that support where they don't understand they're never going to understand your passion for it your drive they're never going to understand like what that feels like but the fact that they can accept you and that you can't be anything else. This is who you are, right? And that person that is going to love you through that and understand it, it's one of the most things I'm grateful for every day. I mean, she started the idea Literally, that yeah. got you here to where you are now. Mm -hmm. I'm so curious about the blog, does it exist still? It, it exists. You can wow. look it up. You can literally look it up. Blogspot.com slash making it 365. Would you object if in the show notes we put a link to it? You guys yeah. could definitely do that. I was actually, Sweet. I've been kicking around the idea of turning it into a book. Maybe we should. I'd so read you that can book. make some money off that. No, it's, it's up. <laughs> so what are some of the things you learned in doing that about how Nashville communicates i feel like Rick. there's a specific way of communicating here it really is this is such a relationship town it's literally based on forming authentic real relationships with people that you become actual friends with not just what can you do for me type relationships but it's more like a give and take real friendship and building those authentic relationships are really important. I think that's what it's about. What's your take on this town's ratio between those who have those relationships versus those who don't? You know, it's such a small town, right? Mm -hmm. So I think the folks that really do consciously decide to build relationships and build their circle of, of people that they believe in and who believe in them, those those people do rise. There's a cliche that we always talk about here in Nashville is like you rise with your camp. Yeah. And that's true. Like once you find your group of people, there's an energy that's created, I think, between those people and the publishers who are looking at you feel it. And then they sometimes want to jump in and be part of that team. The um, wh whether it's managers, publishers, artists, you tend to attract that, too. So it's it's really good to just um, build those relationships. So you mentioned John, you mentioned Jason, who were some of those early people that became part of your camp that you were collaborating with when you got here? Definitely John D'Agostino right from the beginning. And then I had my mentors. Like I worked a lot with a guy named Fred Noblock, Fred J. Noblock, or J. Fred Noblock is what he goes by when he plays the Bluebird, but just remarkable hit songwriter, kind of the same crew. He always plays with Tony Arata and Tom Schuyler at the Bluebird, kind of grew up with that camp. So 
I cut my teeth with Fred for sure. And then just became good buds with Steve Lester, came up with Steve. And then as I was going, I was working a lot with Ava Sapelsa, which still I have a monthly with her and uh, Tristan Bushman. And it kind of just keeps going. There's just a lot of people that become part of that. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Crew. Are you consciously working with people that came up in your class? Because we're always open to new people, of course, because we're in an industry that is about networking. But are you consciously making sure that you have people in your class that you're still connecting with all the time? All the time. Absolutely. I'll have my go-to... The way my brain thinks now is like if I'm going to work with an artist, you know, I'll listen, I'll do my homework and then I'll think like, okay, uh, I think this person would be great to team up with on this session. Right. And it's usually someone that I've worked with for a long time. Man, that's really interesting that you just said that because I find that one of the most overlooked skills for songwriters is curation of rights. Right. Not just be the best writer in the room, but be able to bring in the right people for the right artist. And that's really interesting that you just said that because it sounds like your brain works that way. Absolutely. I'm consciously thinking all the time of that. Another one that was a, a great collaborator of mine, still is, is uh, Megan Connor. She eventually signed a demolition and we had a every Wednesday for three years. How do you go from being a signed writer at demolition to becoming the general manager of oh, demolition? That was a happy accident. If you asked me, before I moved to town or when I moved to town even, that I would be sitting on the other side of the desk at one point, I would tell you you were crazy. (laughs) I'd never imagine. I think what it was was that when I moved here, I was teaching music to make money. I I do love teaching. I love the kids that I worked with. But in the midst of teaching, that's when I signed with Demolition. I'd literally wake up every day, teach till 3, get to the row by 3.30, and write until 9.00. And rinse and repeat every day for a good, like, I mean, two years I did that. It got to the point where I couldn't take it anymore. I was burning out. So I I decided I was going to take the leap and quit teaching and go songwriting full time. And as soon as I decided that, it's weird how the universe works. Because it was like one of those leap in the net will appear. Like, how are we going to make enough money just on my draw, just on writing songs? And... At that time, our creative director at Demolition left for another company. And John, the owner, he was like, could you jump in, pitch songs, do some A&R, schedule rights, just until we get somebody who could do it full time? He knows I do have a bachelor's degree in music marketing. Never thought I'd actually use it. (laughs) But I kind of was in the position where I was saying yes to everything. So I was like, yeah, why not? Let's do it. And that interim has been, what, six years or so now? I never left. I just kept growing with the company. And and the company has grown so much yes, with you as the general manager. That's so cool. It's amazing to see where we're, where we're at right now. It's crazy. How do you balance your managerial role with your role as a creative? It's a constant juggle. And I do believe that I think some people are built for it and some people are not. 
And for whatever reason, not me. <laughs> yeah, not me. Frank, uh, for those listening, Frankie just gave the throat slashing yeah. motion just right there. Man, I remember at the time that I was offered that position at Demolition, I was talking to two trusted people, and they both had opposite views, right? So, and they were both very respected in the industry. And one person was like, "Well, if you take the job, you need to change your name as a songwriter." And the other view was. No, you can do this. Times are different now. You can do it. And I just decided that that's the advice that I was going to go with. And I will say the advice that I went with was coming from, his name's Frank Rogers, one of the most successful producers in Nashville, who also started Seagull Music Publishing, sold that, and now he's the global CEO of Spirit Music Group as well. And he's still producing folks like Scotty McCreary, Darius Rucker, and writing number one. So his whole career has always been juggling as well. So I kind of looked at him as being like, well, okay, he can do it. See if I can do it too, you know? If we could dive into your songwriting for a little bit. Please, yeah. You have a number one in South Africa. Yes. Tell us about that. Like how, for people from North America, especially Canadians and Americans, when we're writing you know, we're always thinking about writing for, frankly, the American and Canadian market. But boy, South Africa, like, tell us how you got that. Demolition is uh, Nashville-based. Our admin company is from L.A. And they are predominantly a pop and TV and film-based publishing company, as well as an admin company. And they have a phenomenal consultant who pitches songs, and he pitches demolition stuff all over the world. So that came from a pitch that he made to... Uh, South African artist named Zena, who's on Gresham Records out there. And she recorded it, and yeah, she took it to number one. It's pretty amazing. It's incredible for those listening how much pitching is like a global thing, isn't it? Like, Because yep. I think that a lot of people have this tendency to think very parochial. Like it's just Nashville, U.S., maybe just Canada, and then the rest of the world sort of doesn't exist when it comes to music. Yet the rest of the world is bigger in population than just those two countries. Right? Oh my God, you're speaking our language. Literally, we, we think about that all the time where I know we're just in Nashville and Nashville's predominantly a country market, but there are so many opportunities that so many folks in town don't have their eyes on. So just for example, things that we're doing, like besides pitching to South Africa or Australia, we do a lot of things in K-pop now too, which is um, Korean pop music. I mean, Everyone knows at this point how big Korean pop oh, music yeah. is. It's it's ridiculous. Yep. But we started doing that, and we got lucky last year with a few really big cuts. So it's like what you said. It's a big world out there, and there's yeah. a lot of opportunity. Are there other publishing companies in Nashville that are exploring the same opportunities as you, or do you think Demolition is one of a small group? It's definitely, I think, a smaller group of companies that are branching out like that. But there definitely are. There's no doubt. Was it your time in Demolition, which pushed you towards the sync side like you're a songwriter you come to nashville you, you work your way through it you grind your way through it, you get signed you're writing songs and then all of a sudden you find yourself getting a, a ton of placements are you thinking sync all the way or are you like hey john i'm a songwriter he's like have you ever thought of sync and you're like oh i don't know what sync is that was a big one for me because when i signed to demolition we did not have a sync department. It was a straight up... Whoa, wait a second. So there was no sync department when you signed a demolition? Yeah. I mean, it was just you and John and Shane at that point, right? Yeah, it was literally uh, me, John, Shane, and um, there were two other writers, a guy named Adam Searin and Jason Eustace. How many people work for... What, what's demolition size right now? Now there is... Um, 
well, let's see, there's about seven on staff, six uh, core publishing writers, and we've got about six folks that we curate uh, sync sessions for on a regular basis. So Demolition's tripled in size yeah. with, since you were signed to Demolition. Yeah. And the question about sync is an interesting one because when I first signed, coming from New Jersey, outside of Philadelphia, I was not born in the country, right? right. So, sure. you know, so a lot of my stuff being influenced by the Counting Crows, I was naturally writing a little bit more pop, a little bit more alternative rock. And there was no outlet for that. And a few of our writers, like Adam Searin, he was also inspired by a lot of that music too. So our catalog at the time, though it was small, did have a lot of stuff in there that was just collecting dust. Like things you couldn't pitch to country, right? Mm. So as soon as I took the creative job on the business side, my first initiative was I want to build out a sync department. My dream was always to sign to a company that had that ability too. So I thought, you know, field of dreams, if you build it, he will come, right? Mm -hmm. So literally started from the ground probably five years ago now, got in it, started going to LA every other month, meeting supervisors, meeting, making all the inroads, finding out who was doing it in Nashville very successfully, setting up sessions. Um, and then, yeah, that was, that was basically it, just kind of building it from the ground up. I mean, from Michael writing his blog back in Philadelphia when you're writing your first blog, yeah. the first version of it, all the way to like creating a sync department in a now well-respected publishing company. That's a heck of a journey, brother. Thanks, man. It's wild to think about it. I think a lot of the stuff we do as songwriters or the things we want to achieve as songwriters, I don't know if there ever is a direct path. Looks more like a bunch of squiggly lines, <laughs> you know? And sometimes you have to make it happen other than just writing the song, right? You have to create the thing that then becomes the thing. Can I ask you a personal question? Sure. Because you're, you're very confident in your story and stuff like that. Along your journey, what were your doubts? I mean, I don't think those ever go away. And if you're in this, you know what I'm talking about by saying like it's a constant roller coaster of emotion. Like one day you feel like you're on top of the world. You feel like you're like really making strides in your craft and in your career. And literally the next day you could be like, I suck. Right. <laughs> nothing's happening. Nothing's uh, going to happen. Yeah. When is it ever going to happen? And all those thoughts. I think one of the biggest fears for me, the biggest doubts were like always like, Am I good enough? Do people take me seriously? What if it never happens? All those, you know what mm -hmm. I mean? Like all those feelings that you, that you get. Even still with having a number one in Canada, I mean, are you still experiencing wow. those thoughts? All the time. I think it's constant imposter syndrome. Yeah. And then it depends on the day. You could be like feeling on top of the world one day. And then one day you could be like, man, do I know what I'm doing? <laughs> Like, do I have any idea, like, even getting in a room and being like, should I be in this room? Should I be in the job that I'm in right now? You know, how good can I fake this? Do other people know that I'm faking this? But at the same time, I mean, I feel like we all go through that together. Yeah. You know, and that's one good thing to re remind ourselves. Yeah. How do you stay? I mean, because you're such a positive person. How do you stay optimistic and positive? There's no doubt. I will say it's like, that is a disposition. I'm born that way for sure. Like I, I definitely am always a diehard optimist, eternal optimist. I look at the bright side naturally all the time. Uh, I will say that something that has helped me immensely, probably in the past two or three years, I started meditating every morning. It helps with so many different things in life as far as being present, enjoying the journey, all those things that you hear about. I feel like meditation is just 
been a really good tool for me. You know, just to add to that, meditation has allowed me to shut my brain down for a little bit. Yes. And and that's been like a godsend. I've been doing that for a couple of years it's now. Amazing. So I feel that, man. Dude, it's big, right? Yeah. It, it is. Yeah, it's a game changer. Should we talk about the musical at all? Do you want to? Oh, yes. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. You've written in so many different genres, pop, country, you know, this Counting Crows rock you did <laughs> in uh, the 2000s. <laughs> and you've written a musical with John. Yes. Tell us a little bit about the musical you two wrote. Oh, man. If you ever asked me if I was going to write a musical, it was never on the radar. Never. Never even thought about it. But... <laughs> You know, we have this expression in Nashville that uh, it all begins with a song. And just like that, we wrote a song that John had brought me this idea, a true story idea, about a group of people that he had met doing, he's an avid karaoke -er. nice. <laughs> I don't even know if that's a word. Me too. But, yeah. No, I think that yeah. is. Yeah, it's karaoke. -er. I want to karaoke with John sometime. You, oh, it's a blast. And he literally, like, he was in New Jersey, and he'd go to karaoke, and they'd have, like, you know, Pine Street Tavern or Escondido's, whatever Mexican restaurant or bar had their weekly karaoke night. And he would frequent these. And through the years of doing that, he met people that were regulars, became friends with them, learned their stories, and just come to find that everybody that he became friends with was all dealing with some struggle in life. Like, for example, and these are all true stories, the one guy was named was Bobby G, and he had he lost his job on Wall Street. He was a broker, and he had to drive taxis to, like, try to keep his house. And another one was this woman named Lisa the Hat. They called her Lisa the Hat because she had <laughs> a different best. hat on every... That's the best thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This is Jersey, remember, Yeah, right? Lisa the Hat Lisa sounds the, so yeah. Jersey. Saying the Jersey accent. And Bobby G, eh? Yeah, you know? Bobby G. Hey. Lisa the Hat. <laughs> but it's really what they called her. And she, like, through the time they had found out, found out that her husband was cheating on her. She was going through this divorce situation. There was a guy named Ronnie that was a 74-year-old kind of crooner singer like love to do the standards they'd come to find out he didn't tell anybody uh, until it was really late but he was dying of cancer oh my god so john met and became friends with all these people and he brought this whole thing to me he was like i want to write my piano man i want to write the song that tells the story of these different people and everyone came together at this bar and blah 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 whatever and i was like man that's a beautiful idea like let's do it so we wrote the song and after we finished it, we wrote it with Chris Yerchuk, actually. What? Yes. I had no idea. Yeah, yeah it's crazy. And I mean, he's the best guy to write with, oh, period. It's incredible. And we literally took a step back, and like a year later, we were just like, man, there's something bigger here than just a song. So just little by little, we wrote an entire musical based on the true story of these different people and about um, John, who was actually at that time also going through the um, loss of his father and kind of dealing with that because they were really tight. So, you know, it's kind of one of those situations where the karaoke was really just an escape from all the shit that you deal with in life and everyone's going through different things. So the musical is a little bit like Cheers meets like... Uh, I don't even know. Rent. Yeah, exactly. Like Cheers meets Rent. Dude, that sounds like a fantastic musical. So, so it's it's wild. So we're just in the workshop phase. We just, I mean, we had our first New York workshop. It was phenomenal. We had like a room full of 80 people and we're just at this stage now. We've tweaked the whole thing. We've had multiple performances of it. And every performance we just rewrite, tweak again, 
edit. And now we're at the point where we're going to do a, a three-night run in New Jersey or in New York, we haven't decided yet, where it'll be the final thing where we invite the big investors, everyone that invests in Broadway musicals, and we'll see what happens. So it's like a Nashville showcase for Broadway in yeah, New York. literally, mm-hmm. yeah. Is this the hardest creative thing you've ever done? You know what's interesting? It's definitely hard, but it is in no way taxing. And I, I've talked about this before where it's like, it's the first thing where I feel like I can write and not worry about the rules. Like Broadway and stuff has its own set of rules, don't get me wrong. But I can be as musical as I want. I won't have to worry about going to a chord that'll take you off the radio. You know? <laughs> like you can be as fun, you can be, you know, as simple as you want, you can be as dramatic or as fancy as you want chord-wise musically, but it's the first thing that I feel like I'm being me 100% in the songs. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah, it's it's kind of cool. That must be a great release. I mean, I, I think that we do this so much. We we write in very narrow rivers, and then yeah. to hear you talk about how freeing this is, I think that's pretty magical. If you could give baby Michael three pieces of advice, the Michael who wrote that early song, knowing what you know now, what would those three pieces of advice be? Number one, it's what you know, and it's who you know. Relationships. You relationships. got. You got to. You got to make your relationships. I think number two. I do believe that you need to be in a major music city to make a go at this. Mm. I really do. Number that was one of the me. pieces of advice you gave me early on. Right. Right. Yeah. And now you're here. And now I'm here. I do have a philosophy of present to win. Right. Right. You have to be present to win. Yeah. Just showing up. That's like one of the most valuable lessons I learned. And then third, what that blog taught me a lot was if you have an idea, don't hesitate. Do it in the moment. Because if you wait too long, you're either going to forget it or you're going to second guess it. But if you have an idea, do it. Because the worst thing that's going to happen is you'll hear crickets on the other end. The best thing that could happen is you land that publishing deal. You get together and you do that session and you write a hit song. Anything. The sky's the limit. So I I really do believe that. It also kind of ties into the last thing I'll say, which really does go with this podcast. A big philosophy for myself, John, and Demolition is, you know, dare to suck. Yeah. Dare to write the ideas that might sound crazy, right? the out of the box stuff because if we're all just shooting for you know down the middle it's just a bunch of noise you know i love it this okay great. this is amazing thank you so much dude thank you guys kidding me you've given us i don't know a million pearls in this conversation <sighs> yeah thank you for letting me just talk about this stuff though it really feels it's amazing to actually kind of re-go through the journey so thanks for letting me you know ramble on well it's our pleasure buddy This song that we're going to play here at the end, uh, tell us a little bit about it. Talk about full circle moments. You know, we I told you guys the story about the blog. So not only was that first Shane Barrett meeting the meeting that eventually led to the publishing deal and Shane became the plugger, well, Shane pitched this song. This was my first big major label radio cut, and Shane Barrett was the one that pitched it. So literally came full circle from that first moment. It was about five years it took before it got cut since we wrote it. Well, that's fantastic. Wow. I'm, I'm looking forward to listening to it. Uh, and for everybody out there, I'm David Boris. And I'm Frankie C.
And remember, everybody, everybody sucks. sucks. Six day God made Adam out of dust. Teacher said that the Big Bang is where we came from. Mama said it's a miracle we're all born straight out of love. But Daddy said, Let me tell you, son, it's a good day's bad day's You run!